and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages, with the writers behind them. I'm Cindy Yu. As the EU and the UK both set out what they want to get from the upcoming trade negotiations, I'll be heading for almighty Brexit showdown. We also have a look at the constitutional reforms being proposed by Guinea's President Alpha Conde and how he has succumbed to so-called African strongman syndrome. And at the end of the episode, a pet peeve of mine, dogs that are treated like babies. But first up, this week both the UK and the EU have set out what they want to get in the upcoming trade negotiations, but the gap is just too wide to bridge, writes James Forsyth in this week's cover piece. So where are the differences and where would potential compromises lie? James joins me now, together with Peter Foster, Europe editor of The Telegraph. So James, you write in this week's cover piece that we're heading towards an almighty Brexit showdown. What do you mean by that? So if you look at the the postures the two sides are taking up before next week's trade negotiations start, that they are fundamentally quite aggressive to each other. The, the European Union is saying we can't proceed with the talks until we agree on the level playing field and governance. And on that level playing field, you've got to basically continue following EU state aid rules even after you've left. The UK government is saying that the whole point of leaving the European Union is to do things differently. We intend to diverge. We're not going to be bound by any EU rules after we've left. And the EU needs to accept that you can be a country in Europe, but in the words of David Frost, who is Prime Minister's chief Brexit negotiator, you know, and be an independent country, and the EU can't stop you from doing that. So the two sides are set up in quite entrenched positions right now, and both sides are ramping up the rhetoric. And I think you know, I think it's funny when you think back to that first meeting between Boris and Ursula von der Leyen in January. They both said, "Oh, we don't want these the trade talks to be as kind of you know as, as kind of bitchy as the first round of negotiations were of all the briefing and the backbiting." We are in a world where already accusations of bad are being hurled around the room of ever-increasing ferocity. Peter, one of the reasons that the EU thinks that the UK is doing things in bad faith is because they think that the level playing field commitment has already been agreed to in the political declaration. That's what critics of Boris Johnson are saying as well. Is that true? How much has the UK already agreed to? So, so there are two things here. There's the withdrawal agreement and there's the political declaration. The withdrawal agreement is a legally binding, solemnly ratified treaty and the political declaration is non-binding... But nonetheless, Boris Johnson last October agreed to it. He agreed to it at a time when he didn't have a majority and was trying to finesse this whole thing through the Parliament. But you will remember that Theresa May signed an all-UK deal to set effectively Northern Ireland and the United Kingdom in a customs union. And the price of that was also agreeing this level playing field commitments, which was that you know essentially we wouldn't play fast and loose with the rules on state aid, on environment, on, on tax, on labour laws, in order to undercut unfairly EU businesses. It's not that the EU doesn't want us, except that we don't can't diverge, it's just that it wants to create fairness. Now, all of those conditions were taken out of the withdrawal agreement and put into the political declaration. And the EU view is, this is not a legally binding text, but it was a text that the Prime Minister agreed up to, and it's no good now saying you've moved the goalposts. You know, you you never turned out anything about this level playing field stuff. The number 10 press office put out tweets saying, why can't we just have Canada? I mean, to be fair to the EU, since 2017, they have been saying the UK is not Canada. You are umbilically linked to us by a pipe called the Channel Tunnel, and we will not give you zero tariff access to our markets without reassurances. And that is, you know, going to be the big core of the fight that's coming. 
James, critics of Boris Johnson are also saying that unless you want to erode these trading standards, you know, why bother diverging at all? What's the use of freedom if you're not going to do things differently to the EU? So what is the government's reply to that? So the argument about doing things, you can do things differently, but trying to achieve the same result. I, I think I think in part this argument about level playing field is, is in many ways a red herring because the UK is always going to have, I think, higher social standards than some EU member states. You know, the, the UK already exceeds on holidays, minimum wage, maternity and paternity rights, you know, certain states are in the EU. It goes beyond the minimum requirement. I think if you look on the environmental front, you know, the UK has signed up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement. It's hosting the next set of talks on that in, in Glasgow later this year. And it has legislated in its own domestic law for net zero by 2050. And I, I think I think that the part of what is going on on the, on the level playing field argument is a row about a, a, almost a theological row. The EU has got to be, these have got to be, the reference point has got to be our standards. The UK has been, well, no, we're going to do things our own way and get to the same place. Where I think things are different are things that relate to innovation, which is this government's big obsession. So I, I, I say two areas where I think which are not the kind of classic what we think of as level playing field, environmental and social, which I think are where the action's going to get really quite spicy. That is data, you know, GDPR, you know, look at the fact that Google is already saying it's going to kind of bring data back to the UK after Brexit. That's because it thinks that the UK data is also going to be more more lax than the EU's or take a different approach. And the other is the whole question of the precautionary principle. I think the UK post-Brexit will take a far more lax interpretation of the precautionary principle in the EU. What is that? The precautionary principle basically says, if you think something could cause harm, you should stop it from happening rather than allowing the innovation to continue and finding out whether, for example, driverless cars run down pedestrians on crossings. So the EU thing would be, we are not sure that it is yet safe, so it should be banned. The UK thing would be, well, let's carry on, you know, the kind of UK approach to it, I suspect, after Brexit will be, let's carry on innovating and see how it goes. Which is, a mu- and it's not just the UK approach, right? Behind that is the US approach, right? When it comes to pharma testing, when it comes to animal health standards and all the rest of it. And, you know, Actually, I, I mean, I agree with James that a lot of the level playing field stuff, Boris Johnson said in his speech on February the 3rd, we're not going to engage in a race to the bottom. And so the EU response to that was, well, then fine. Then why are you worried about these level playing commitments, right? Where you want to be uh, not in a race to the bottom, but what's your problem? The problem is that, that behind that is the fact that Brexit is going to reveal the asymmetries, right, between us 65 million people and them 460 mm. million people so we could be notionally free it's slightly disingenuous of the eu to say well what's the problem why don't you why don't you sign up to it? because what they're really doing is saying our markets 460 million people give us the leverage to force you to behave in a certain way even if you're notionally free so take agriculture 80 percent of our agricultural exports go into the european union fruit and veg 70 percent of it comes in the winter months from the european union in the level playing field clauses, there is in there saying that production standards are part of level playing field. If you're a battery chicken farmer, you might move away from EU standards on battery chickens, have more chickens in your barn, produce your eggs X percent cheaper, right? And so what the EU's doing there is using its muscle, mm. its relative muscle, to keep us from diverging, from undercutting, and also from embracing US approaches and standards that will complicate uh, uh, and reduce their own regulatory influence. And, and we are kind of piggy in the middle there. And behind all of this will be a kind of slow 
European Union grinding desire to rub not well not rub Britain's nose in it, but to use its leverage to constrain British options. James, you write in your piece that the EU has misunderstood the UK, it hasn't really understood the implications of the Boris majority. Do you think there's a risk that the UK side hasn't understood, as Peter just mentioned, the scale of the EU and what that means in a trade negotiation? So the EU's approach to trade is kind of the median dialogue of regulation. You know, the strong do as they can, the weak do as they must. We are bigger than you, so we can force you to do this stuff. I think the UK government, where I think it has understood the EU approach is this. Theresa May was was desperate to try and minimise or prevent friction at the border. And so she came up with all these ever more elaborate schemes, which were essentially schemes to keep the UK half in the single market and the customs union. This government is much clearer. It says it is leaving both of them, and it accepts that there is going to be friction at the border. I remember that, you know, repeatedly figures in government back in the autumn would say, you know, look, none of this money being spent on no-deal planning is wasted because we're going to need all this stuff Afterwards, you know, if, if, because you know that is the, we are just working on the infrastructure that we're going to have to have to trade with the EU after the date. So they have accepted the friction point. I think where the EU think they have some leverage, and I think they have a point on this, is if there is a negotiated FTA between the EU and the UK, the EU will at least initially say, "Look, we're going to do everything we can to make this as smooth as possible." If these talks end in failure. I mean, the EU will then adopt a finger-checking approach to everything. If you end up training on World, World Trade Organization rules, you know, hello, Mr. Lorry Driver, can you get off? We want to we want to t- t- take a soil sample from your boot to check whether you might be bringing anything into the EU that, that breaches you know, our, our SBS guidelines, all that stuff. But I think the downstream argument would be this, which is Boris Johnson doesn't have to face his electorate until 2024. So if you assume that kind of mutually assured destruction at the borders, yeah, yes, it's going to have a a bigger economic impact here, but it is also going to have an imp- economic impact on the continent, particularly in Northern Europe, those countries with the closest trading relationship with the EU. At a time when the global economy is slowing down anyway, it's threatened by coronavirus, all of these things, you know, you guys will have to go and face your electorates and explain why you've inflicted this economic pain before we will. And I think that's why they think that ultimately this desire to avoid no deal on both sides will push towards a deal. Peter, as we're recording, there are rumours around Westminster that Boris Johnson might walk away from the negotiations altogether in June unless significant progress has been made by there. Do you think he's serious about accepting a no deal at the end of the year? Uh, You know, you talk to people in the inside and they say it is very ideological. You know, you know, what James has just described about friction is is true. But David Frost's speech in Brussels was extraordinary because it made no coherent case for the point of the friction, right? There's no, the government has made no coherent economic case for why the friction's an advantage, right? Other than this sort of notional idea that we'll go buckling into the distant future. Right? I think so, the case isn't economic, right? It's so, more ideological. Okay, but so, so, so the air tastes freer, and... right? No one was sat in the pub going, I'm not paying a common external tariff. No free-born Englishman paid a common external tariff. They weren't, right? So this conflation of sovereignty with trade, I think, is, is a, it, it's the Faustian bargain that Boris made to become prime minister. But the truth is... A load of frictions at the border. So we're going to stand there with our queues in Dover going, yeah, we might not have much fruit and veg in the supermarkets. Yeah, we've got, you know, three day tailback in, in, in some airbase out Manston airbase, but we feel free. I honestly don't believe that Boris Johnson has any political incentive to do that. If you talk to the aviation sector, the pharmaceutical sector, the, the auto sector, the Food and Drink Federation, the uh, farmers, right, none of them 
Look at the IOD surveys that came out today. None of business wants this. It's a purely ideological operation, right? And, and do you know where the burden of it falls? It falls in the red wall states. The danger is, I think, that ideology... I mean, David Frost saying, you know, I don't believe these studies about it'll all be really messy. OK, but go and talk to the people who actually do the trade and they tell you that it will. I don't seriously believe, if Boris Johnson thinks about it for more than about four seconds, that, that a no-deal... Is, is doable. I mean, I'm not saying that he wouldn't necessarily do it and they'll have to pick up the pieces afterwards, but I think it's it's beyond insane. James? So I think it's actually, I think what Peter was saying, sort of, it comes down to one of the tensions between number 10 and number 11. The view of Sanjay Javid's team was you needed an FDA that protected those manufacturing seats that the Tories had won for the first time round. And basically that meant that even though Sanjay Javid was prepared to tell businesses to get ready for friction, he was more prepared to make compromises to keep those supply chains relatively friction-free. It's all a relative concept. The number 10 view is decisions made in this country will have a far greater impact on those businesses and the future of them than supply chains. They would say to you in private, the decision to push forward with electric cars at breakneck speed, 2035 or possibly even 2032, is more significant for the UK car industry than what happens to these supply chains, because you are basically saying to them, you need to kind of get on with doing this stuff. I also think that the Red Wall raises another interesting aspect of this, which is, where is the EU's biggest ask in its mandate is on state aid rules. Now, I think there's a lot of talk, oh, is the UK going to turn into Singapore? No, it's not going to turn into Singapore on Thames, but it is going to turn into Israel on Thames, I think, if you think about it. Lots of state money going into research, active state work to try and kind of to try and create the state is trying to kind of try to create clusters in various bits of a country to promote various bits of high-tech manufacturing science-based stuff or life sciences things all of that stuff now that i think is attention because i think the, i think on the eu side they can hear all this talk and they they want they want to protect themselves from that competition the UK has traditionally had far fewer state aid cases against it than than the other major economies in the EU but you know, could that change? I mean, that that's the tension. I also think that you can't. What you can't do here, where I think the frost argument about economic modelling has a point, that there is a there is a, clearly is a value to having control of your own regulatory framework in terms of what you can do, mm-hmm. unless you think that a sovereign UK would do exactly everything the same as the EU, whether it's on GM crops or GDPR. Really? I I don't mean that is the case. Then the question becomes, what benefit do you derive from those changes? And and also, I think the other thing is, you you look at the, the, the evolution of the European Union, the direction in which it is going in, its attitude to a world in which economic power is shifting towards Asia, and I think there, there, I think there is, I think there is a different UK approach to that question than the general EU twenty seven attitude. Peter, very briefly, last word. This is where industry goes nuts, right? Is that is that I follow. James, all the way up to the point where he says you have to look at the regulatory advantage that would come from being nimble, being Israel on debt, right? But you also have to look at the costs of achieving that ability, right? And this is where Downing Street just seems to be... I mean, I talk to business all the time. They are in there all the time, and they literally are talking to flat earthers, right? It is, in, it is extraordinary. I don't think there's ever been a point where government has simply waved away the objections of 
the industries that will have to suck up this friction on the basis of some sort of what was it, not much more than a whim, as far as I can as I can see. First of all, I think business always favours the status quo. That that is a, a clear case. A friend of mine tells a story. He worked in the city for a stockbroker, and the night before the big bang, they sat round their big oak table, and they all lamented the change that was coming the next day, the arrival of the American civilization. Lunch was ending as well as civilization. By the end of the day, by the end of the business day the next day, they were all millionaires. Not a single one of them around that table had envisaged quite how dramatic the change was going to be. Now, I am not suggesting for a second that on the 1st of January 2021, suddenly British businesses will sprat, will find <laughs> that it has, their fortunes have changed this dramatically. But, but, but I do think that business is business looks at the status quo and there are other opportunities and other things that are changing in the nature of a global economy. I, I agree. You know, we, are on the, we are on the cusp of... You know, everyone says, oh, but you know, why doesn't... not sign... Just for a second. Why not sign up to the EU approach to manufacturing? You know, none of these rules have changed in the 1970s. We're on the cusp of a massive period of technological change. We're on the, you know, on the cusp of a fourth industrial revolution. You know, I think having a different attitude to things like data and the precautionary principle could be hugely economically valuable in those circumstances. I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that it... It couldn't be, but but we are erecting a barrier between us and Europe. So that's fine, okay? That's what we're doing. No one's disputing that. So then, what's extraordinary is that is the government has not produced a coherent case as to why it's doing it and what the upside is, other than a bit of sort of buccaneering bravado. I mean, Boris Johnson's speech in Greenwich. This is the moment the British Prime Minister stood there and said, I'm inflicting the greatest change on this country since Suez, since the end of the Second World War. And he came up with a whole load of sort of slightly kind of public school kind of stuff about the ceiling and the buccaneers and the Elizabethan age. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, 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 I hope it doesn't go wrong. I am surprised that the Conservative Party is not more concerned about the reputational risk for what it's doing. Well, let's see how that goes later this year. Peter, always good to have you here. Thanks very much, James. Next, Guinea's president, Alpha Conde, was hailed as a liberal hope when he first took power in 2010. But now, 10 years on, he is trying to change the constitution so that he can stay on beyond his two-term limit. Colin Freeman writes in this week's Spectator that Conde has succumbed to what he calls African strongman syndrome. With me to discuss is Colin, together with Dr. Alex Vines, director of the Africa programme at Chatham House. So, Colin, can you start off by telling us who Alpha Conde is? Yes, Mr. Conde has been the leader of Guinea since 2010 and distinguished himself in as much as he was probably the, the first truly democratically elected leader of Guinea. The country's had a pretty troubled history since independence in 1958 from France, really with very little history of democracy since then. Marxists and uh, dictators and generals basically ruling the country. So when Mr Conde came along, he was seen as a bit of a breath of fresh air. He was a former opposition leader, not an ex-military chap for once, but a man who had a, a law degree from the Sorbonne. Uh, his nickname is Le Professor for that reason. And he seemed like an all-round good egg, really. One of what was seen as a, a generation of new uh, new broom African leaders, if you like. 
But you wrote that he succumbed to African strongman syndrome, or what you call African strongman syndrome. Well, yes. Uh, unfortunately, after having now sort of served two terms in office, he wants to amend the constitution to allow him to run for a third term, which many people see as being the sort of the precursor to trying to cling to power forever in the manner of Robert Mugabe. And Mr. Conde is also 81, so many people might say, look, you know, time to hang your boots up, as it were. He hasn't said so as much. What he said is he wants to amend the constitution. It will then be up to his party to decide whether they want him to lead them or not. But in general, with these situations where there is a ruling incumbent, both in the party and in the country, there is every chance that he will probably stay. And uh, this goes against the grain, both in West Africa and across you know the world generally these days, where most countries now have a, a constitution specifically designed to stop people running for a third term, purely to stop strongman syndrome. And indeed, old man syndrome, you might you might call it. Alex, Colin writes that Conde has had good relations with the West. I mean, we heard about his nickname and he's also had good relations with leaders from Blair to Boris, really. But is it all that surprising that something like this is coming from Conde, considering he's been dogged by rumours of electoral fraud and corruption ever since he took power in 2010? President Alfie Conde became president in December 2010. He had succeeded a president who died in office having been there for 25 years and there'd been an interim period with a a gentleman called Dadis Kamara who was completely bonkers and Colin writes about that really nicely. Initially it was like fantastic there's suddenly a a break of history here Uh, there's a a French educated professor who's saying all the right language Uh, and so Alpha Conte was the first Guinean president for for over 25 years to visit the United Kingdom in June 2013. He spoke at my institute, Chatham House, talking about how he was going to change everything as a new era for Guinea. He was the personal guest of David Cameron at a big G8 trade transparency and taxation conference. You had the celebrity professor academic from Oxford University saying, this guy is a good egg. (laughs) He really is going to change things, Sir Paul Collier, and so on and so forth. The thing is, Guinea is strategic, yes? So the previous president of of, of Guinea had actually been lauded by the Blair administration because Guinea had a non-permanent seat on the Security Council at the beginning of the last decade. Uh, And that was all about a second vote in the UN Security Council around um, the invasion of Iraq. So we're talking about early 2000s here, actually. And in fact, he was too ill to come. But there had been an offer of a guest of government official trip to the UK if he had been healthy enough to come. And Baroness Amos went to see him, I believe, in his oxygen tent at the time. We then have, uh, more recently, uh, Alpha Conte's been back in town. He was here in January because he was a guest of the British government for the UK-Africa Investment uh, Summit, and Boris Johnson was hosting that. The the reason for it is that 26% of global bauxite comes from Guinea. It's truly strategic in terms of strategic minerals. It's also massively important for iron also. We like the minerals, basically. And someone else who likes the minerals, Colin, you point out in your piece, is the Russians. Yeah, that's right. Um, Guinea was a Soviet client state back in the 1960s. And in the last five years or so, President Putin has been trying to rebuild 
Russia's foothold there, just as he's been trying to do so in other African countries as well. The Russians already have quite a big stake in Guinea's bauxite and aluminium uh, supplies, and uh, unusually they, they've made they've made no bones about this to the extent where the former Russian ambassador, while he was still ambassador to Guinea, actually got involved in the row over whether Mr Conde should stand for a third term or not, went live on television and said words to the effect of, look, folks, do you think you're going to get a better leader than him? (laughs) And, uh, you know, which is not the sort of thing ambassadors are really supposed to do. I mean, there's a word called diplomacy. He seems to have ignored that. Then just in case anybody thought, you know, there was no conflict of interests, he then left his job and took a job as head of the, the, the main Russian company that is in Guinea exploring the, the aluminium deposits and so on. So I, I don't think anybody can be in much doubt that there was a conflict of interest there, but, but that's the Russian game. They're pretty blunt about what they want. I mean, that's the scary bit about what's happening in Guinea. I mean, for the Russians, the bauxite's truly strategic. So their company, Rusal, as Colin wrote, is it there truly, truly important. The Russians actually are very knowledgeable about Guinea, much more than many other African mm. countries. But the, the, the broader strategic issue here is that there is a, a, a norm, normative value in the regional community which Guinea is involved in, the economic community of Western African states, West African states, which is two terms and you step down. That is the norm. That's the consensual position. Fiddling with the constitution here to try and put the needle back to zero and say the clock starts again, that's very dangerous. And so it can set a precedent that will then get other African leaders thinking, well, actually, it happened in Guinea, Mm. and maybe those Russians are actually quite good at helping us get constitutions changed to go back to zero, and then we can have another two terms. That's not only dangerous for West Africa, that's dangerous for the continent. Alex, apart from this attempt at changing the constitution, has, has Conde been good for Guinea over the past 10 years? He, I mean, presumably his allies would say yes and that he's reformed certain things, but what are those things or are there anything? I, I think Mr Blair, Paul Collier, all of these gentlemen were naive around 2010, 12, 13, saying, you know, this is a new era, this is a new man, this is a new discourse, because the, the, the way that Guinea is structural is very much a neo-patrimonial clientist state, and, and re-engineering that is a massively difficult task. So what we're actually seeing is more continuity and change. Mr. Conde was able to spend quite a lot of money on consultancy. There was a bunch of consultancy firms in London competing that got contracts to, to, to support different positions in the Guinean government. And, of course, you had London-listed companies involved who have been badly burnt because of corruption stuff. Rio Tinto, for example, mm. it, 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 with the Simadu project, it had to do a U-turn. Tell us what happened there. Well, both Rio Tinto, but also the Brazilian mining company Vale, found that they had actually they had been payments for facilitation and privileges and this came out to the point that Rio Tinto had to uh, had decided that the, the reputation risks were, were too much despite the size of the iron ore deposits and they, they've strategically withdrawn from most of the project and redesigned their Africa strategy. Now, there are other uh, p- uh, actors involved, including Chinese ones, so it's a very murky, complex story. But the point is, it, the, the, these deposits are world-class. That's what really defines Guinea, is it's got certainly world-class iron ore, world-class bauxite, and maybe hydrocarbons too offshore, but we're not so sure about those yet. 
Colin, something you pick out very nicely in your piece, and Alex has just mentioned here, is the faith that Western liberals have put into Conde. Do you think there's a risk for Western liberals to, you know, look at these opposition leaders when they were in opposition, and then when they come in, really laud them as a breath of fresh air when actually they're probably just being a little bit naive? Well, I think that that there is a risk of that. Equally, though, you know, in in somewhere like Guinea, you have to to deal with whichever leaders are you know are available who look okay and also are capable of winning power the problem is that once they get into power they have their own local challenges to deal with they have you know political opposition groups who they have to deal with sometimes who take to the streets and demonstrate there's a there's a history in guinea of fairly violent demonstrations and confrontations between the police and and people on the streets, and it's it's easy to sit here in London and criticise Mr. Conde for, you know, dispatching police and troops onto the streets who may have opened mm. fire on demonstrators. If you see those demonstrations uh, up up close, you realise it. You know, it, it's it's harder than it looks to do things without spilling blood. Uh, I don't think Amnesty International will thank me very much for saying that, but uh, th- there is a bit of, you know, th- th- that is sometimes the reality. You have, for example, Tony Blair's Africa Governance Initiative, which backed Mr Conde after he took power and sent in advisers from Downing Street to help him run the country efficiently. They did do some, uh, did make certain achievements. They helped him build a large hydroelectric power dam. They improved delivery of services here and there. But, you know, the, the reality is that, uh, you know, that these projects um, that run by people like Mr Blair are only ever going to be able to achieve so much and, and the messy politics on the ground does always get in the way. Alex, and finally, do we know anything about what the public opinion is on the ground? Obviously, there are demonstrations, but are they fired up by the opposition leaders or is it more complicated? So, so the opposition is strong. There is a, a, you know, there is a aspect of the character of President Alpha Conde which is that if things get really tough, he, he can blink. We've seen him blink a couple of times before. Uh, and so uh, the opposition politics could, in the end, scupper this idea of changing the constitution, going for a third term. But he has people like the Russians really encouraging him to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. So he's got a bunch of people that, that he now listens to. So, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of the illiberal group, and they're not, he's not returning phone calls, I don't think, to Tony Blair or, you know, the National Democratic Institute in the US. People who uh, in 2011, 12, 13, up to about 14 had tremendous access, could just give him a call and he'd pick up the number straight away or WhatsApp him. He's not doing that any longer. That's very telling, I think, of the direction of travel. Alex and Colin, thanks very much. And last, are we forgetting that dogs are pets and not people? Melissa Kite writes in this week's issue that dogs and cats are increasingly being treated like babies with their designer clothing and fancy grooming. So have pet owners lost the plot? Melissa joins me down the line together with Stuart Simons, a London groomer who also founded the Groomer Spotlight, a website that helps you find your local qualified pet groomer. So, Melissa, tell us, what are fur babies? Well, fur babies are our pets, although we're being told that maybe we shouldn't call them pets as people become ever more concerned about animals having almost human feelings. So my theme was whether we should be treating animals as humans or whether we should actually treat animals as animals. I have to preface all of this 
by making a confession, which is that I, you don't have to Google very hard to find an article I wrote in the Daily Mail a few years ago, in which I was photographed in bed with my Cocker Spaniel, <laughs> wearing pink satin pyjamas. So I am not guiltless in all of this. And I have, you know, been known to be quite sentimental about my animals. But I would say in my defence, even though I do, I absolutely admit, I do sometimes quite often take the dogs to bed with me. I do know my dogs are dogs and I do try to allow them to be dogs and we just return from a fantastic walk. They go out for a couple of hours morning and evening, they come out with the horses and they've just come back covered in mud and you know they're wringing wet and they're very happy. I'm just not too sure that all dog owners are you know treating their dogs as dogs as I sort of say in my article and um, you know it's got to the point now where recently for example I was out with my dogs and uh, somebody came up to me and said oh no where's your dog's coat and I said well because it was wringing wet the dog was had been on a long walk and was wringing wet and I said well he's wearing his coat <laughs> you know it, it's called fur <laughs> And we've got to the stage now where if a dog's not wearing a little jacket, people think it's not got a coat on. And, you know, we're also seeing more and more kind of dog grooming, whereby the dog is given a hairstyle and they shave all its actual coat off and then put the other coat, the little jacket, on the top. So I'm just kind of exploring that idea that maybe, you know, we've lost sight of the fact that animals are animals. Now Stuart, your salon shot to fame a few years ago when you dyed Emma Watson's dog bright pink, Mm -hmm. very very bright pink. I mean do you think the clients that you see don't understand that their dogs are dogs? No, they all like they know that the dogs are dogs and that was a specific case. I'd been approached by a bridal magazine and they wanted a dog dyed pink for a shoot and I am the only qualified creative groomer uh, in the UK. So all grooming is creative. So a dog isn't, you know, a, a poodle isn't cut into this specific style, you know, with the big pom-poms and everything else it is that's a creative groom but it had a purpose so in the olden day olden days when they worked they were water dogs and the pom-poms are there to protect the joints Mm. the big pom-pom on the on the top of a poodle around the chest area is to protect the internal organs pom-pom on the end of the tail is when they're in the water they used to tie a ribbon around each pom-pom on the ends of the tail and so that the people that they were the dogs were retrieving for would know which poodle was theirs so and the um the pom-pom on the top of the head is to keep the brain warm so there was always a reason but that is creative grooming and these dogs are bred as our companions you know if they're adapted from wolves you wouldn't see a bichon walking around in the wilderness with all this coat uh, that we've created uh, we've done that and so therefore we have the responsibility to make sure that they're happy and healthy in the environment that they live in and that's why as far as the creative grooming is concerned and I personally as a professional groomer take the sort of approach that it's my responsibility to make sure that if it's done it's done in a professional and safe way because otherwise we drive it underground and then Mm. dogs start to get injured and so the whole Emma Watson thing was I'd done my dog for this bridal magazine she came in to get her dog groomed and said I'm raising some money for breast cancer charity I've really loved you to that to my dog and obviously I went through the correct procedures to make sure that that dog was safe and happy the whole way through it. 
I totally understand what Melissa's saying and I totally agree to a certain extent, but I do think that we have a responsibility because we've bred these dogs to be our companions. And if they're not working, then there's nothing wrong with having them as companions. And if a dog needs a jacket because it's cold outside, then all we're doing is caring. Yeah, but I'm not arguing with dogs as companions. <laughs> I'm I'm actually saying that's great, but what does the dog want and need? And the dog probably would like to go for a walk. And I actually, I think what you've said is fascinating about that's why the, the pom-poms were in that place. I think I'm very supportive of keeping the breed, the integrity and clipping what you're doing. It has an integrity to it and I wouldn't dispute that. What I'm taking issue with, if you go out there just on the common or the park most days of the week, everything's clipped. And we've lost sight of actually the vast majority of dogs have got the coat they need for the time of year and in the summer they shed it and in the winter they grow it you know dog grooming is growing as an industry which must mean something it's not that everyone suddenly got a poodle that needs its pom-poms cut in the right place and that they're you know got dog groom is growing because we're clipping every dog no matter what what the need for the dog to be clipped is you know when I did my article in the mail where I posed in my pink satin pajamas with my cocker spaniel in bed (laughs) Which, by the way, she loves. She goes underneath the duvet. My dog trainer at the time, um, who's a a working cocker expert, said to me, you know, the next time he saw me, laughing at me, you know, and, and getting that it was a joke. But he said, you know, don't forget to let your dog be a dog. And I took that advice very seriously. Stuart, that industry side that Melissa mentioned is really interesting, actually, because the pet industry now is around £7 billion a year. Mm. You've been a dog groomer for more than a decade now. Have you seen that industry growing? Have you you got more demand for creative grooming and that sort of thing? Yeah, there is. There's loads of demand. I've got family in America. And when I first started, I was an actor beforehand, still am. But I went over to America to visit family uh, in the States and there was a groomers on every corner. And and I came back and realised that actually there wasn't half as many here. So I saw a gap in the market and, and took my chance and it kind of worked for me. But going back to what Melissa was saying as far as dogs being dogs is concerned, I completely agree. But we breed these dogs with these specific coats and cocker spaniels and they need to have home care. Otherwise, if a dog's just left to be to grow and to have mm. this completely natural coat, it just starts to get matted. A dog will get wet and then what happens is that, you know, I've I've dealt with dogs like cocker spaniels that have had such bad matting that when I've tried to clip into it to try and get it off because it's very uncomfortable. It's like wearing a straight jacket for yeah, a human. Yeah, but that's neglect. Once isn't it? it's because cut when... off, once they've been cut off, then um, it was so tight that the nail bed started to bleed because it released. Yeah. And I just I think that it's important that there's a nice balance. I totally hear what you're saying, Melissa. But for me, there's a balance of the two. I think absolutely, dogs should be dogs, and they should be let to run riot in the field and have a lovely yeah, but time but a then minute. it's Can our I just responsibility say that I'm not to letting sure. my dog run around and get matted I every time we come back I do maintenance <clears throat> yeah but not everyone with, does Melissa is what I think I'm the point yes I know and I, that's what I'm saying and that's what you you've got the right breed for that you've got a working cocker spaniel mm. so uh, you know most grooming you probably need is a bath, a brush out and a, you know, a good, maybe an undercoat removal. Is it a problem, Stuart, then with designer breeds? You know, breeds that were designed by humans to look good or cute or whatever it is, but without much thinking about the practical side of things. Yeah, I do believe that's the case. I think it's tricky. I think it, it especially these days, brachycephalic dogs 
pugs, French bulldogs right. are really, really popular at the moment. And actually, the flatter the nose, the more appealing they seem to be to some owners. And unfortunately, that's a problem because, you know, there's health issues. But unfortunately, humans have bred that brachycephalic nose in and it's got further and further and further. And now the dog's got respiratory problems. And uh, so I, I do think that it's it's almost like a trophy dog mm. in that respect. Not for everybody. They're beautiful dogs and they're love, loving kind dogs but there is definitely that around i must tell you that as as we're speaking i'm looking out my window onto the village green i live on and a little poodle's walking past it was not a poodle it's a sort of crossbreed but it's so funny because he's walking past with a pink and black very natty coat on i'm just walking watching it walk past it looks very happy (laughs) happy. (laughs) melissa and Stuart, thanks very much and that's it for this week you can read all the pieces discussed in the podcast in this week's Spectator, together with Prulief's diary, Freddie Gray on Bernie Sanders, and Mary Wakefield asks, why did no one believe Johnny Depp? If you don't have a subscription to The Spectator, remember you can get one at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, where for just £12 you will get 12 weeks of The Spectator, together with full access to our website and a £20 Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. 